Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 182. And I promised in the last few episodes, we've got some big episodes coming up, and this is one of them. This episode sees the return of Dr. Paul Comfort, reader in SNC at Salford University. And Paul came on basically to discuss how to program powerlifting and weightlifting with your players and into your programming. So we cover some great stuff in this. Paul actually gives an argument for the use of the barbell. There's a lot of people arguing away from the barbell at the moment using different bits of kit or different movements. And we go into why and when you would use the barbell in um, preparation with your players. We go into the discussion on whether there is a place for traditional bench, deadlifts and squats. We go into some derivatives of Olympic lifts and also when to uh, periodize those and plan those into your program. And then just on that as well, how the timing of the season dictates what sort of lifts you can do and how Paul would go about amending the type of lifts and how he would change things as well. So loads coming up in this episode. Just before we get into the episode, a very quick reminder that we have our next network a networking event coming up on Wednesday the 27th of April in Manchester at the University Academy 92, 5.30 to 8.30pm. The event is going to be based around knee injuries in professional football and elite sport. And we've got two incredible presenters, Dr. Lee Harrington and Dr. David Ridings presenting for us. We've already seen a few tickets go already from clubs in the local area, but also a little bit further afield as well, which is great to see. But there are still early bird tickets available. So if you're thinking of coming to this event, make sure you act now, get yourself a ticket at footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and the tickets are available there because they will be going to full price very soon. So go and act now, go to the shop at footballfitfed.com. And just final call of business, a big thank you to our sponsors, Black Box Fitness. Black Box are the world's best training equipment, accessory and apparel brand. Black Box believes that training isn't just a checkbox on your to-do list. Training is a lifestyle, continually seeking your highest performance in the gym, on the pitch, at home and in everyday life. To perform at your best, you need the best and Black Box has you covered. So go and check them out on social media at BLK Box Fitness. And then also to Rezzle. Rezzle is the world's leading cognitive training platform for sport. By using VR technology, Rezzle and Player22 can create game style scenarios and recreate pressure to help you prepare for the real thing. So go and give Rezzle a follow at R-E-Z-Z-I-L. And finally, I'd like to say a big welcome to a new sponsor on the Football Fitness Federation podcast. That is Hytro Training. Have you tried Hytro, the wearable blood flow restriction solution that is unlocking better recovery in players? While many may have used blood flow restriction for rehab, Hytro are demonstrating the huge impact BFR can have on recovery and performance when used after competition or training. Through their innovative design, BFR straps are integrated into shorts, delivering BFR to groups of players safely and more conveniently than ever before. So go and check them out at hytro.com or email Warren 
Warren's been on the podcast before, Dr. Warren Bradley. Warren at Hytro.com to find out how Hytro can help accelerate the recovery of your athlete. So big welcome and thank you as well to Hytro Training. Let's get into the podcast now, episode 182 with a reader in strength and conditioning at Salford University, Dr. Paul Comfort. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 182 and I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast. It's been a fair while, Dr. Paul Comfort. Paul, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for being invited, Ben. Thanks for um, asking me to come back on. Obviously, did, did an okay job last time. Did a great job last time. I remember our conversation. That was one of the very few in-person um, podcasts that I've done, actually. And it was, uh, yeah, it was enjoyable. So, yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. Um, there's loads that I want to go into in this episode. But for anyone that didn't listen to the last episode, and I'm sure they've listened to you speak, whether they've been at the uni or of a podcast, I'm sure they have a bit of knowledge about yourself. But do you want to just give us a little bit of breakdown on you and your career so far? Yeah, yeah, no problem. <clears throat> so I started off sort of as a personal trainer and doing strength and conditioning type roles before strength and conditioning was actually a, an occupation already talked about in the UK, um, just showing my age there. Um, so way before the UK SCA was formed, um, and I think the NSCA were only on their first first edition of the, the Essentials of Strength and Conditioning textbook. So, yeah, I was working in, um, while I was at university, working in a uh, gym, but working with two ends of the continuum, generally sort of overweight business people that wanted to get in shape for um, going on some luxurious vacations or um, athletes that really just wanted to get that edge and try and try and do that a little bit better. So it's sort of two extremes. Um, then I ended up working at you know, Southampton University for a year, did a little bit of stuff with some of the teams there. Moved on to um, work for the University of Essex at a college in Southend-on-Sea um, and then moved on to Middlesex University where I was teaching, lecturing as, as I do now, but also mixing that up a bit with working with TAS athletes, so those on the Talented Athletes Scholarship Schemes and working with a few other athletes um, sort of independently, which I've been lucky enough to be able to fit that in and do that throughout my career. And then, what are we now, 14, about 14 years ago, moved to the University of Salford. Um, and yeah, I've been there for the last 14 years, combining lecturing, doing some research, and where possible, although not certainly nothing in the, really in the last couple of years, consulting with teams and working very closely with teams. So I've still done some consultation with teams in the last few years, but actually working closely with them when I first started I was given time each week to work in liaise with Salford City uh, Salford City Reds or Salford Red Devils as I think they're now called they've changed the name multiple times um, so it was great to be able to sort of keep keep your hand in and still do bits and pieces with a range of different clubs and luckily at the university we've got great links with a lot of clubs because of the density of sports teams in this area and it's it's actually a really lucky position because you can go in and be brutally honest with everyone because you know, I can say what I like and be really, really honest without worrying about upsetting people or hurting their feelings when we're going in on a consultancy role because my job's secure. Mm. Um, and actually, sometimes you do then get coaches and other people um, in the sort of in, in the staff saying, well, why has nobody ever told us this? Um, so it's really nice because it means that we can keep that insight into what's happening, you know, at elite level sport or sport across a whole range of competitions, you know, from grassroots up and, and across different types of sport. And use that to 
hopefully help them improve their practice and refine their practice. Not saying that it's bad because it normally it's just refining it and tweaking it. But it also um, provides us with loads and loads of questions um, that we need to go away and answer. Well, practitioners will say to us, right, what about this in this situation? And you sort of sit there and think, okay, well, there is no research on that. There's research that may be related, but we have to make a lot of inferences. Um, so, yeah, I suppose my career really for 20 plus years has been a nice mix of working in academia with um, working alongside sports teams from, you know, sort of semi-pro sport through to professional sport. And before that, it was, you know, working in personal training and strength and conditioning before strength and conditioning was actually a title you would be given um, in the UK. Um, and it's, it's nice to see how it's grown and, and developed. I think I was the 16th member of the UKSCA um, when they first set up. So it's nice to see how that's progressed and developed and that really their assessments and accreditation is sort of the really world leading compared to where most people are at that sort of level. Um, and then obviously to see strength and conditioning as a, as a profession across the world grow and develop has been, has been fantastic. And it's been nice to see where that goes over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, definitely. I know that's something we spoke of, wasn't it, in the last podcast, uh, whether you can remember it or not, in terms of, um, yeah, the, the sort of early steps into SNC and how that progressed at that point. And obviously now we're two years further down the line with a few things happened in the world, but we'll brush on from that um, yeah. quickly. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting in terms of the, the consultancy in SNC and sports science, isn't it? Because that's definitely something that's I think is accelerated. I think it's right saying over the last few years and to have that point of view where you're removing yourself out, but you can have an input in from the outside is, is an interesting one, isn't it? And possibly my personal opinion is something that's probably going to accelerate over the next few years as well. Yeah, hopefully. And it's nice because, you know, a lot of sports clubs don't necessarily have access to some of the facilities and resources that we might have at university. Um, there's no point in us doing a lot of research on university sports teams because most of them, certainly at the University of Salford, don't play at a particularly high level. Um, it varies across different universities, obviously, but we haven't got the setup that you've got in the States, uh, you know, where you've got very, very good athletes that, you know, as soon as they finish um, out of university, they go and play professionally. We don't have that setup. Um, so it's nice to pilot stuff on them, but you really need to be getting your, um, you know, getting your boots on the ground, so to speak, and seeing what happens happens in elite sport why it happens and you know a lot of the time the research is you look at it and think well yeah that'd be great in an ideal world but then you go and get yourself in that multi-disciplinary team with the input from a range of different people and all the constraints on teams and they can't necessarily do what you would like them to do or the culture just isn't there so you have to do something different and it's not that you you know you still try and do your best but if the culture is not to do heavy strength training you've got to find a way of hiding that in their program um, so, you know, it's just simple little things and it, it varies across, across sports and across, even within sports, it varies between teams, but to be able to go in and get that insight is great for us to then feed that back to our students, then get our students on placement and upskill them. And I think it's really useful for the teams to get, you know, that additional insight and, um, it provides CPD for them and it gives them somebody that they can pick up the phone and just say, look, this is what we're planning on doing. Give us, give us your thoughts. And the nice thing is that's, you know, we don't just get that locally um, from doing things like this, from, from doing podcasts and presenting at conferences, especially the virtual ones. Now uh, we're always myself and my colleagues are always getting practitioners contacting us saying, I listen to this presentation or this podcast. You talked about this. I've got a few questions or this is what we're doing. 
is that appropriate? Could we do it differently? Could we do it better? Can we collaborate? Uh, and I think that's great because it's actually, even though, you know, with the pandemic and everything, it caused all sorts of issues, um, you know, globally, it actually has made it easier to communicate with people across the world because everyone went to going on to Zoom or Teams, etc. So that's been really, really useful because people are seem much more comfortable with, you know, communicating in that way. And it's, it certainly opened up some opportunities for us, which which has been fantastic. And I think it's it's something where you've got to get mutual benefit between the sports teams and the universities or the researchers um, to make sure you're answering the right questions. And, you know, some of it you don't need to. Sometimes people will ask a question and you go, well, based on the underpinning physics or physiology, this is the answer. We don't really need to research it. But people won't always believe you until you've published something like that. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and to touch on what you were speaking about before in terms of a lot of studies and stuff being done on university teams, it actually ties in nicely with the previous episode where the lads at QPR were speaking about doing more research in the academy setting um, and hopefully that ramping up over the next few years as well because it's definitely something we need more of, isn't it, um, to be able to relate it to that sort of level. Um, so, but, yeah, it's, it's something that those guys are doing great and I know there's plenty of other practitioners involved in the game as well that are doing stuff as well yeah it's really interesting because it's you know you, you always get this trade-off between what some people class is real research and real science and you know th- that doesn't tell up to them how they how they see it and define it you know everything needs to be controlled so if you're putting an intervention in place that's the only thing that could have affected it that's great but that's not what happens in the real world so in the real world you know we perfect example we did a study recently where we planned a certain amount of training volume throughout but we had two different groups um, all the group was split then we crossed them over afterwards to give us a crossover trial to make it a little bit more robust biggest problem is all the training we planned i think they ended up completing on average just over 50 percent of the training mm-hmm. but that's real world that's what happens um, so I, that's far more applicable to team sports um, and especially in this case it was football so especially uh, applicable to, to football because that's what happens the one thing that we learned most from that study is that we need to find a way of actually making sure they get the appropriate volume of training because there, you know there were issues with people being injured people having covid so academy players having to play up you know uh, to the age group above and sometimes even in the first team and then training with them so there were some of them that three or four weeks uh, completely missed any resistance training and as you would imagine they detrained. You know, they might have been playing three games in seven or eight days, but they detrained. Aerobically, fantastic, but they detrained because you took your, took away the high load, high intensity stimulus, which you just don't get when you're playing the sport. And I know loads of people will talk about tactical and agile periodization. Well, if you understand periodization is agile anyway, and just playing your sport, we know we've known well since since Roman and Greek times, they didn't just you know practice. Um, playing sports or practice fighting they did more than that they knew that actually if you just did that sort of stuff you'd be good at it but to get better you can go back to um, drawings and stuff from you know two three four thousand years ago in Egyptian times where people were lifting heavy rocks etc to get a a physical sort of performance stimulus Mm. to make them better when they were in combat or whatever they were doing or when they were actually competing in sports and unfortunately that doesn't always happen so we need to make sure that we give that appropriate stimulus to people but it it is really that trade-off sometimes between what's what can we do in terms of the most controlled study and what can we do that's ecologically valid and replicates what happens in the real world and we need we need both 
but you need to start in one place and then take it from there, you know, and you can start at either end of that continuum. It can be very lab based. And then we take it to whole body, real world. Does it still work? A lot of the time we look and go, oh, no, it doesn't, or it just doesn't work to the extent whether we hoped it would. Or you can look at it in that environment, right? This does work in that applied sporting environment, right? How does it work? Then you can unpick how and why it does work. And then once you understand that, you can refine your practices based on the fact that you now know why a certain training intervention or nutritional supplement or whatever works. And then you can go back to what you do in that team environment and refine it and make it even more effective. So it's, it's really, it's almost a continuum. It's a sliding scale that you've got to keep moving along to say, right, does it work? Why does it work? How does it work? Let's refine it. Let's go back to that applied environment. Um, and you've got to make sure you do a bit of all of that, which actually is great because it keeps it really interesting. Well, I personally find it doesn't like bore people to tears, but um, for, for me, that the best part about my job is I'm just continually learning. Yeah, 100%. And I love that, that it's giving you essentially tools in your toolbox and allowing you to um, adapt at certain times, isn't it, when you need to? And with that yeah. approach, I'm now going to ask you a really rigid question. <laughs> so something that I've been thinking of um, recently, and I thought it was definitely your demand to, to answer this and give your perspective, um, is around bar- barbell lifting and also more so powerlifting, traditional um, power lifts and how it fits into our program. Because I see a big trend in terms of SNC, and I'm, I'm talking obviously more football, physical prep now, um, of getting away from the barbell, getting away from back squatting, getting away from traditional deadlifts, traditional bench press, and coming up with alternatives, different bits of kit. So there's a lot of arguments to, for that in terms of getting away. What would be your argument for using the barbell and those traditional lifts? Well, I think it sort of goes back to what you mentioned a moment ago. They're all tools in your toolbox and you've got to use what is most appropriate at that time. And while you could argue that doing, you know, a barbell um, front squat, back squat, whichever variation of a squat you want to do, is probably going to be the most efficient and most effective at getting you strong. You're in a stable environment. It's a bilateral task. You're not having to worry about what weight you can hold in your hands or on any other device. So it's going to get you strong quickly. It's multi-joint. And at the same time, you know, you're, you're relatively stable. You're not on a split stance or single leg, et cetera. So, you know, really useful, really effective. I know people will say, oh, I, I don't like doing it. Or, you know, my athlete complains that it hurts their knees or their back or whatever. Well, unfortunately, the biggest problem with that is that just means that they're a poor coach. If you can't coach your athlete to perform these tasks appropriately without pain, you're doing something wrong. Now, I know within football and other sports, it could be cultural. You know, I've been in a club before where somebody's got injured, not a player, but part of the coaching staff has got injured squatting. So somebody's got rid of every single barbell in the facility just in case somebody else gets gets injured. That could have been a kettlebell. That could have been, you know, uh, any device that that you might be using, whether that's a K-box or, you know, some iso-inertial device. You can still get injured. You get injured doing everything. And people do obsess about that a little bit, but the easiest way not to get injured is not to play sport. You know, the injuries occur most when you play sport, but you're not going to say don't play sport. That would be nonsensical. So I think, you know, the main thing is with the barbells is they're easy to teach the exercises. You're more stable. Um, It's easier to learn that and coordinate and stabilize and using dumbbells, kettlebells or anything else. It's pretty quick and easy. Um, And it comes down to just a little bit of coaching. You know, everyone can 
sit down onto a chair and stand up. Everyone will sit on the toilet and stand up. Um, so if you can do that, you can squat. So it doesn't take a lot to actually get a person to be able to squat competently. What you have to do is build up progressively and, and you know, use progressive overload. You're not going to hit somebody that's never done those tasks with, you know, a 1RM test straight away and then train them at, you know, really high loads. You're going to start off progressively. If you've never done it before, an empty barbell is enough to create a stimulus because you've never done it. So then you just slowly and incrementally add a bit of load, a bit of, bit of volume, or maybe up the volume for a while and then drop the volume and add load and keep fluctuating between the two. And I think that one of the biggest problems is that, you know, the arguments that a barbell or a dumbbell or, you know, whatever modality of exercise you use is better than another is, is futile because it's, it's about progressive overload. And we've known that for decades. Um, or as I mentioned earlier, even going back to sort of um, Greek times, um, you know, you can think about the myth, uh, the, the story about Milo of Crotona, where, you know, he picked up a bull in a field, took it to the next field, moved it back and forth. I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing this. And by the time it was a fully grown bull from starting off as a calf, he could still pick up this two, two ton bull. You know, the basic principle is correct. If we keep adding progressive overload, that will work. Obviously, that falls down. You couldn't get your arms around a fully grown bull. But, you know, we've known this for years. And as long as we apply the principles of progressive overload, our athletes will adapt and get better. And that's why, you know, when people say, but I never use a barbell or I never back squat or I never do this or I never do that. And I, I get my athletes are good. Well, of course they are. If you, as long as you've used progressive overload. Mm. But there are certain times when certain exercise, exercises may be preferential. And we know that using that, you know, a bilateral squatting type movement is really stable. So we can really load them up. You could argue why not use a leg press or why not use a Smith machine. Unfortunately, because you don't have to stabilize everything in the same way, we don't get quite the same transference to whole body dynamic movements when we play sport. You will still get stronger. Though. Um, and there's a place for all these types of exercise and activity. But it's identifying what's the ideal thing at that point in time. And, you know, you can you can argue against standard exercise. And like you said, with the squat and deadlift, the fact that actually the last 50% roughly of the range of motion is deceleration. Um, because if we didn't decelerate, once we get half the way through that range of motion, squatting or deadlifting, we jump. Um, and that's not the exercise we're doing. So then you can argue, well, let's use a ballistic task then. Let's make it a jump, Let a loaded jump. Why not do that? Well, you can, and that will allow you to accelerate throughout almost the majority of that range of motion, but you've also got to land it. And then you've got, you know, those elevated risks of injury, spinal compression, if it is a, if it is a squat um, with some potentially high loads. And then you can't load those to the same extreme as you would with a traditional squat, deadlift, et cetera. So you've got the really high load stuff with a traditional, um, you know, powerlifting style training. And then you've got the more ballistic type training, but we've got a safety issue. So you need to go further along the continuum then and start looking at ballistic type training, probably, you know, with no external load, then progressing onto the plyometric training. So it's that really short contact, very reactive, you know, training that fast stretch shortening cycle rather than the slow stretch shortening cycle. And then somewhere in the middle of that, or of all of that, you can fit weightlifting because you can use weightlifting exercises to train high loads, but there's a much smaller period of deceleration. There clearly is some because you, with a traditional clean or snatch, you get to the top of the range of motion and you drop underneath the bar. So you've had to decelerate so your body can change direction. Um, so they all fit along a continuum. And in reality, 
If you're going to train your athletes really effectively, you should be using a combination of all of those, not necessarily all of them at the same time, but in a phased and sequential approach, which is where, you know, that's what periodization does. Not necessarily that traditional block model um, that was set up for, um, you know, Olympic athletes and, and where they knew that exactly when they were going to compete long off season, short in seasons, et cetera but still using that type of approach where, right, we need to maximize force production at the moment. My athlete's not very strong. So a good example is football. A lot of times we'll do testing on, on football players and they've got a really good sprint performance. They can accelerate really well. They can jump really high. And again, sometimes people use that argument and well, I don't need to get them stronger. Look at how high they can jump and how well they can sprint and accelerate and change direction. But actually they're expressing you know, a very high percentage of their maximum force production really efficiently. You can't express much more than they can already express because they're expressing maybe 80, 90% of it anyway. So what we need to do is then raise the ceiling. So now they're only expressing, you know, a smaller percentage of that maximum force. And then we can emphasize their ability to express force rapidly in that more ballistic and dynamic manner. And then we get enhanced performance. And that's why you need that sort of phased approach where things are changing in emphasis and at certain people, you know, you, you can look at some rugby union players, especially phenomenally strong, but actually not that ballistic. Mm. So they will probably benefit more from the more ballistic style training, uh, especially, you know, some of them you can two and a half times body weight as a back squat. That's pretty impressive. Um, so they need to emphasize the more ballistic um, type of training at times and then go back to the heavy load, high strength training and emphasize that. So at no point are you really stopping any of those. You're just shifting that emphasis. Because if we take a training stimulus away, people start to detrain. Uh, so, you know, I'm not really giving you a straight answer there, have I? But uh, <laughs> it's the fact that you need to use all of these types of, of exercise appropriately. And again, like I said at the beginning, it's if you're in a culture where you cannot do certain types of exercise that you like to do, you've got to find a way of hiding it. You know, and I've seen it in certain academy environments where coaches and parents don't like seeing a, a young athlete with a barbell on their back because they can see a large external load. Well, in that case, go with a, you know, a lunge or a split squat and give them dumbbells or give them a kettlebell, give them a weighted vest. You'll probably get the same amount of load through that leg. But you get to a certain point where you can't really load those tasks that much more without having to use a barbell. And that's, that's when it becomes a limiting factor. Uh, so once you get an athlete who's already quite strong and quite well developed, you're probably going to struggle um, to get them a lot stronger without using um, your standard barbell squatting patterns, etc. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I, I think that's a great answer, to be honest. I think it's um, it's not something that you could just, it wasn't a straightforward answer. It was never going to be, but that's exactly what I expected, like a, a really good um, all-round answer that covered things that people need to take into consideration. And I think the, the whole analogy with the bull, that defines the importance of strength training throughout the academy now, doesn't it, as well, through those yep. academy ages? Because um, then when we get into whether it's 18s, 23s, first team, those foundations should be somewhat in place, yep. um, which allows us to then build on top of, doesn't it? Yeah, and the, the biggest problem that I see sometimes across the academies is actually you can explain <clears throat> changes in performance based on maturation. So most of the increases in strength are because they've got heavier, larger muscle mass. And most of the increases in jump performance are explained by that and the fact that actually they're taller now, so they go through a larger range of motion during a counter movement. You've got more time to apply force, and that explains a change in jump height. 
Um, but at the same time, if you look at long-term athlete development model, you're really trying to get them to the point where they can train efficiently and effectively by those sort of you know mid to late teenage years. So that's not a problem. But what it does tell us is that in a lot of situations, people are doing being too cautious with the loads that they're giving people in. That could be load in terms of you know the relative load, the percentage of one around they're going up to when the athletes are competent or the volume of training that they're actually doing to really get an adaptive response because you you can look at the the volumes of aerobic exercise that they perform with technical and tactical training and conditioning and that improves that improves across age groups and it's a, a notable and almost systematic almost linear improvement that you see across those age groups which you would expect and you have to do that i'm not suggesting for one second you don't because you're underpinned by being able to perform for 90 minutes. Mm. But at the same time, we really need to get a sufficient, um, you know, resistance training stimulus in there to make sure we get the athletes as strong as possible. Because one of the big, biggest advantages we get from that is the ability of your tissues to tolerate load and generate load. And, you know, there's a substantial amount of research out there showing that that causes a dramatic reduction in injury risks and injury, injury rates. So, you know, we're missing a trick if we really don't get those athletes strong enough. Yeah, 100%. Uh, the other thing with this sort of trend of coming coming away from the barbell is you see specialised equipment, don't you? Like um, safety bar squats and there's a lot more things coming out on the market which makes people lean towards because they think they have to have it because it's new. And by, I'm no, by no means saying that these things don't have a place, but what I'm trying to do is get people thinking essentially around, around their programming. Um, and it's just that time and a place, isn't it? And how, whether it's looking at individualization in a program or whether it's just us being attracted to a bit of the magpie syndrome, being attracted to the shiny objects um, and yeah. deciding, whereas do we need to just stick with the tradition or is there a place for this at this time? Because I've got this reason behind it. Yeah, and I think with that, you know, it's a case of sometimes you've got to go with the athlete's preference as well. If they absolutely despise certain exercises, there's almost no point programming them or because they're not going to put the time and effort into performing them properly. They're going to go through the motions. So find an alternative. So if somebody hates back squats because the barb digs in, into the, you know, their the trapezius and they haven't got much muscle mass there, give them a front squat instead. Give them a hexagonal barbell deadlift, which looks more like a squat anyway. Give them something different. And also identify why they don't like it. If it's causing discomfort or, you know, they're not confident with it, then build them up so they can be confident. If it is digging into the trapezius because they've got no muscle mass there, let's do a bit of exercise, you know, add a little bit of extra exercise, which will build up that muscle mass so it's not uncomfortable for them. Um, so that we can use that, that full arsenal of um, exercises when we really need to be able to use them. And, you know, all those different bits of kit do have a place, um, as you said, but it's using them at, at the right time. And, you know, I've seen some places where all they're using is the sort of the flywheel type devices and that's it and not use doing any barbell exercises or anything else. Well, that's better than not doing anything. So if the culture previously was, you know, body weight training only, that's a fantastic improvement. But is it going to give you everything you could get? Probably not. Um, do we know it with those types of devices what volumes to do? What, you know, how many sets, reps, et cetera, how frequently? No, there's nowhere near enough research on all that at the moment. So we're guessing a little bit with it. And the, the key thing is, is keeping the really simple stuff, the, the basic stuff, doing it consistently 
and doing it right. And like you said, people do go off and they'll, you, you know, you see it, especially on social media, some of these weird and wonderful exercises. They're always out of context when you see them. So you can't just judge them based on seeing that exercise alone yeah. because the rest of the tra- training program could be perfect and that may have a purpose. And it could just be that it was fro- thrown in for fun. That's fine. So, you know, you can't just judge on that. But, um, you know, th- like I said, doing the basics well and doing them consistently is is really key to it. And I think that's one of the things is that consistency, especially in team sports like football, where, you know, they do have really dense periods of competition and you have got fixture congestion the biggest issue is if you take that stimulus away for too long they're going to detrain that elevates or increases the risk of injury everyone seems to obsess about recovery um but actually the reality is you can probably get that recovery a lot of it won't be muscle damage etc if you're strong enough and robust enough it's then refueling ready for your next competition um, if you're finishing a game and the next day that you, you've got severe doms, your training wasn't good enough because that means it was, you know, an excessively high volume or intensity and, a, you know, a stimulus that you're not used to. And if you are playing two or three times a week, you should be used to that stimulus. We just need to then layer that in with the right amount of other exercises to keep you, keep you strong, keep you robust so you can perform at those levels. And unfortunately, what I see a lot is people taking that away for an extended period and you're almost... Um, literally just trying to maintain across a season. Well, if I was going to employ a strength coach and they said that their goal for the entire season was maintenance, uh, I wouldn't be employing them. You know, what you should be seeing is there'll be periods where you maintain. If you look and go, yeah, we have got, you know, a three-week period, X number of games, we're not going to get a huge stimulus in here, fine. But then after that, you'll have a period of time where it quietens down a little bit. And rather than going, right, let's rest them a little bit now. No, now we can load them. And we make sure that they're fully recovered by game day and then you're okay. Yeah, it's a shift in focus, isn't it? You're taking away yeah. one stimulus and you're replacing it with another that you've not been able to maybe push as much throughout the rest of a busy schedule. Um, yeah. I love the bit that you're talking about with social media and everyone needs to go back and listen to that bit again because the context yeah. is absolutely crucial, isn't it? And we, I think that should just encourage more discussions. If you've seen something on socials or wherever it is, and you're disagreeing with it or questioning it as soon as you see it, reach out to the person. Let's have, let's get some discussions going at that point rather than just um, slagging it off and, and calling it this, that, and the other. I think that's important. For yeah. another impossible question to answer, more of a debate. <laughs> <laughs> How strong is strong enough? We hear this a lot, with, um, especially referring to players. If we're looking at those traditional lifts or as close to those as possible, how strong should we be aiming for getting our players? Now, I know I have left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger here and Paul goes on to give a great answer to that question, which is coming up in a few seconds. But just before he goes on to answer it, I just wanted to give a quick heads up to our online community and just to say a big thank you to everybody that has joined the community recently. We've had coaches from Oxford United, Crawley, Aston Villa Women, Bournemouth, Everton, Porto as well. Um, so it's great to see so many practitioners jumping on board and come and join in the community. Obviously, you get access to all the content that's on there, presentations, webinars, but probably more importantly, you get access to other coaches and you can connect and network with coaches from around the world. So if you struggle with that, if that is something you know you need to um, improve on in your career to give yourself some more professional opportunities, then come and join the community. You can get a free month by going to footballfitfed.com 
clicking the community tab and signing up there. You'll get a month free to see what it's all about. After that free month, it's only £4.99 per month and you get access, continued access to all the content that's on there, but you'll also get added into our WhatsApp group where our members have some great discussions over topics as well. So if you're not already taking up that free month, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and sign up there and come and join the community. Paul goes on to answer that question now, so get your notepads ready. Here is part two of the podcast with Dr. Paul Comfort. Yeah, so I'm going to start off really just by quoting Professor Mike Stone saying, you can never be too strong. Um, and you should be trying to progressively and incrementally increase your strength levels um, you know, across your entire athletic career. Now, if you look at the research, there's evidence suggesting that somewhere between 1.7 and 2 times body weight as a parallel back squat um, is the sort of the magic number that you should be aiming for. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't still improve beyond that. Um, but that's the sort of the benchmark, which there's quite a bit of evidence suggesting that that's where, where we should be aiming for. But making sure that is a parallel squat, not just a quarter squat, because we can all do a double bodyweight back squat then. Um, now, if you look back to the research that Prue Cormie did back between about 2007 and 2012, um, and a few other studies that have been done um, along similar lines, if you've got somebody who's relatively weak, you know, you're talking one to 1.3 times body weight as a squat, which for some people is still quite a lot. You know, I've seen team sport athletes that can't do that, a lot of them. Um, and people, when they can squat body weight, think that they're strong. Mm. So at those levels, at those low levels, um, you actually get more bang for your buck and you improve power output and rapid force generation more from doing heavy strength training than you do higher velocity movements and power type training. And there, there, there is a lot of evidence to support that um, because we know that if you increase that ceiling, if you increase your maximum force generating capacity, you will increase your ability to produce force rapidly. But the problem is when you look at some of the studies, they've done a, a progressive block of four, six or eight weeks of training. And there's a progressive increase in volume as well. And then they retest them at the end. If you've just you know, gone through a normal progressive overload process, you will have induced some fatigue. So you probably need to back off for a week and then retest them and maybe retest them a week after that. Because there's always that lag effect with the adaptations and there's always some residual fatigue. If you've had you know, a big uh, period of, of, of accumulation of training. So we've got to make sure we test people at the right times and also test people in the right way. Um, and use the right methods to, to, to evaluate their performance. So, you know, the key thing is just to try and get people stronger, but get them stronger at the right time. So we know if you look at all of the research which is out there, we know that higher volumes will get you stronger, but preferentially that tends to cause a hypertrophic response. But that hypertrophic response sets the foundation. It basically gives us, you know, you compare it to a car, it's like having a bigger engine. So we get more muscle mass. If we then train for strength training and to optimize the ability of, of your muscles to produce um, those high forces, we've got a bigger engine. We're now getting working more efficiently. So we've got to do a little bit of both. But again, in season, and especially when there's periods of fixture congestion, we don't want to be doing high volumes because that will induce additional fatigue. So that's when we'd normally be backing off. And ideally, you can do the high load training. If you calculate your volume load, so your sets times your reps times the, the, either the barbell mass or the system mass, so your barbell mass and body weight, if you're lifting your body weight when you're doing the exercises, 
Um, look at the volume that you do when you do proper strength training. You know, when you're doing maybe three or four sets of three reps, compared to when you're doing five sets of five or six reps with your general strength training, and then compare that to hypertrophy training, you do a lower volume of work when you do the heavy strength training, but there's a higher load. So actually that is less fatiguing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could be doing you know, very high load strength training in season, but small volumes of it, which will maintain your strength. And then periods when you haven't got as much competition, you can go back to doing you know, some higher volume type training. And the power type training is generally non-fatiguing. We stay well away from, you know, um, momentary muscle failure when you're doing power type training because we're aiming, aiming to optimize movement velocity um, and get force generated as quickly as possible. So again, that tends to be less fatiguing um, and less de- detrimental to competition if you're in a sport like football where you're playing um, very regularly because you're not doing the volumes which would induce that muscular fatigue or muscle damage, as long as it's not a new task that you throw in that the athlete's not not familiar with. So you've just got to get them progressively stronger. And I'm not saying, you know, everyone should be able to do a double bodyweight back squat with the volumes of training that um, football players and other team sport athletes do on the pitch. That might be a struggle. Um, But if you were doing that from a young age, through the academy system, right the way through to a professional. I've got data. We've published a couple of studies on academy football players where, you know, we had some academy players the age of 17, 18 that could squat close to double body weight. Not all of them could, you know, they were the extremes. The average probably would have been, you know, 1.5, 1.6 times body weight. And then you had some that weren't very strong, some that were very strong. That might be late and early developers, et cetera. Um, But, you know, I've seen that athletes can do that if they go through that developmental process. And then it's again about identifying, well, what are we going to get? When are we going to get most bang for our buck with this type of training? And what do we need to emphasize? And then that comes back to evaluating and assessing your athletes appropriately to make sure that we're training the right, um, the right physical characteristic. And again, most of the time you tend to find with, with football players that they've got a good jump, they're good at sprinting, and they're really efficient at producing force, but they just can't produce much force. So then we need to actually focus on that force production. And as I mentioned earlier, it's about phasing that and using a sequential approach so that we emphasize, and I'll, I'll stress, emphasize force production for a period, not that we exclude everything else. And then we have other periods where we emphasize that more rapid and ballistic force production to get that transference to sport. And we just keep rotating between those different areas of emphasis as those athletes need. Love that. Love that. Great answer. Um, loads to think about in that as well and, and loads of applicable stuff for people to put into programming as well. I think it's really, really important. Um, just to take that into something we spoke about in the previous podcast in terms of Olympic lifts now as well. And I know this could be a whole podcast in itself. Um, looking at some derivatives, I know this is something that you've you've gone into and, and published a lot of work around this as well. But if we if we're thinking about Olympic lifting, derivatives of Olympic lifting, how do we fit that into the program, and, and what sort of dictates what we do at certain times in terms of Olympic lifts? Yeah, you're right. That could be a, a three-hour-long podcast. <laughs> I've done it again, I'll, 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 Another question I'll, I'll, you can't answer. <laughs> I'll try and keep it keep, keep brief into the point, but I can't promise anything. So, you know, it, 
the, the primary thing you have to think about anytime you're setting up a training program, whether you're thinking about, you know, is it a barbell exercise versus something else? And again, it shouldn't be this versus that. It's what's most appropriate is what am I trying to get at this point in time? Am I aiming for, you know, an increase in maximum force production? So we're really going for strength. Or are we aiming for, you know, the more ballistic, um, higher velocity movement? So is it the force or velocity that we're trying to emphasize the most? And one of the things to bear in mind with that as well, if you want to emphasize velocity, we have to produce um, a, a larger impulse than we normally produce to get better acceleration to achieve those higher velocities. So we've got to be able to produce force. It's all about producing force. It's not about let's, let's unload somebody and make them move faster. Well, brilliant, you've unloaded them. They're moving faster because you've unloaded them. So is that really advan advantageous? Sometimes it is. There is a role for doing a bit of, you know, jump type training where you use the elastic bands to reduce your body weight, especially if the athlete's weak. And there's a role for doing overspeed training with sprinting, et cetera. But it's not going to create the adaptations that we would like in terms of our muscles being able to produce a greater impulse with impulse being forced times time. Um, because we know that things are time constrained. So if they're time constrained and we've only got a limited amount of time, we have to produce a higher force in that time frame, or ideally a higher force in a shorter time frame to still give us a high impulse. So we've got to identify what, what we're really emphasizing. Is it the more high velocity movement or is it the high load, lower velocity, but all with maximum intent. So you're always aiming to move at high velocity, but if you put a lot of weight on the bar, you just can't move very fast because it's a high load. Um, so we have to identify which we need to be focusing on. And if it is things like maximum force production, um, that we're emphasizing then for weightlifting. Um, if you were looking at the traditional weightlifting exercises, so the clean and jerk and the snatch, the clean would be the best option because that's the exercise we can lift the most loaded. If you compare that to a power snatch, you know, we've got to displace the bar much, much higher. The bar has to move at higher velocity it, because the bar has got to be displaced higher. We have to um, get it to accelerate more efficiently and more effectively. So that would be more of a, a speed strength type stimulus where the emphasis is movement velocity. But we're not just constrained with those, you know, the traditional weightlifting exercises that you see in the Olympics. So we've got all these variations that weightlifters use within their training and that we've slowly sort of permeated out into the normal strength and conditioning community. And even if you look right back to um, some of the first professional strength coaches, Boyd Epley, the founder of the NSCA, um, people like that, you know, they, they all came from a, a weightlifting background and started implementing that in their own training as athletes and then got asked to start working with other athletes because people looked and went, wow, how are they doing that? How are they so good at these types of activities in their sport? And then they saw what they were doing in training. So we're lucky that we've got all these other variations. So if we really want to emphasize maximum force production, we need to be using high loads. So pulling variations um, are probably the best option, whether that's a clean pull or a snatch pull from the floor, whether it's from, from the knee, from mid-thigh, off blocks, whichever your athlete prefers doing. Some people hate doing off blocks, some people love it. Um, but those types of exercises, because we don't have to catch the bar, we don't have to displace it high enough so we can catch it, so we can go above our 1RM clean, power clean, snatch, power snatch, whichever you might test with your athlete. So we can progressively and incrementally load those and really emphasize force production. And the other thing to bear in mind with that, if we do it from a hang type position, so we stand upright, 
if we're going for a hang pull, we hinge down to the knees and then rapidly perform that transition and second pull. Because we stimulate the stretch shortening cycle, we actually get higher forces, power, rate of force development, etc., by introducing introducing that stretch shortening cycle movement or, or the counter movement to it. And one of my PhD students, uh, David Meekins, just published a couple of papers, I think it was last year, um, showing that if you compared the pull from the knee to the hang pull and the counter movement shrug compared to a mid-thigh pull, you consistently, at anything from 40 to 140% of 1RM, and 40% of 1RM is, is rubbish with those exercises because you don't accelerate all the way through, the, it's too light. So up at those much higher loads, we still get those higher... Um, force power rate of force development when you add that counter movement the one thing to be aware of with that is if your athlete hasn't got good technique or has is limited with postural control hinging down to the knee to then suddenly accelerate back up can be difficult with those high loads so you might want some athletes to start from blocks to make sure that you ingrain that correct movement pattern etc and to make it a bit easier for them if we look at the other end of the continuum and look at some of the work that Dr. Tim Sukumau um, sort of started off doing in championing with things like the hang high pull and the jump shrug. They give us the opportunity to use much lighter loads. So I said a moment ago, you know, a hang pull or a counter movement shrug or something like with 40% of 1RM. If you put in maximum intent, that bar is going to come up and hit you in the chin because um, it's way below what you would normally power clean. And if you're power cleaning it, it would come to your sternum. Now you're using 40% of that, so it's, it's going above your head if you put max intent in. So probably not the best option. But things like the jump shrug, where you hinge down to the knee and then jump from there, so you end up in an RDL position. You have to, from that position to jump, because your knees are extended, you have to perform the transitional double knee bend, and therefore for that stimulates the stretch shortening cycle even more. And you get rapid acceleration through, and you aim to jump, get off the floor. Um and loads are as low as about 30%, up to about 45% of 1RM, optimize velocity and power during those exercises. And because they're relatively light, you, people don't panic about landing them. Um, again, another study that um, Tim Sukumel published actually looked at the landing forces because people kept worrying, saying, well, if we go high, if we go up to 80%, we've got to land that weight. Well, you have, but at 80% of your 1RM power clean, you don't jump very high. You might jump five or six centimeters so it's not long for gravity to accelerate you back down. So actually, you don't end up with a dramatically higher force with a higher load because you don't jump very high. But those types of exercises give us that maximum intent without worrying about the barbell smashing us in the chin or you know any, any other issues that you might have with technique breaking down when it is a really light load. Hang high, pull, similar sort of thing. You rapidly extend through the legs and the bar should travel up on its own. Yes, you'll keep hold of the bar and you're, you'll flex the elbows, but you're not doing an upright row to get it up towards your sternum or your chin. Um, so you can probably use slightly higher loads with that. That might be when you go from the 45 to maybe 60% of 1RM of a hang power clean or a power clean with a hang high pull. And I know some weightlifting coaches hate that because they think it's teaching people to do an upright row, coach them not to. Um, not always that easy. If you work with rugby players with big, strong upper bodies, Sometimes their legs don't even bend. Well, they bend, but they don't extend. And it is just an upright row. So in that situation, if you can't coach it out and quickly, just go in alternative, give them the jump shrug or something. Um, and again, you get comparable. So if you're looking at that jump shrug at the 30 to 45% one around, give them the same load, use a hex bar, use a barbell on the, on the back. If they can hold dumbbells and do it safely, 
Some people, if they're not very strong, a weighted vest will give you exactly the same effect. Um, you'll get comparable, you know, high velocity movements with load from any of those other exercises. So I'm not saying go with the jump shrug. It's good. It's effective. It gives you that hip hinge. It helps with then obviously training the hamstrings because you've got knee centric um, stimulus on the way down, especially if you're using higher loads. But there's a whole range of other things that we can use to, to train that velocity aspect to the force velocity continuum. The real advantage is, is with those pulling variations is that we can really load them up. And looking back at the data that I've got when we've done things like mid-thigh pulls and hang pulls up to about 140% of somebody's 1RM power clean, that's normally getting up close to their, their back squat. So you're actually getting then, as long as they're competent at performing the movement and have good technique, you're getting a really high load stimulus where they accelerate right the way through the motion, more to, you know, to a greater extent than you do with a squat and definitely to a greater extent than you do with a deadlift. Real. So I need, I need to just adapt the title that I've got down here of everyone needs to jump shrug and everyone needs to, to um, get a double body weight <laughs> squat. <laughs> but we'll pull that out anyway. Um, just finally on that, I was going to ask about how the season uh, or parts of the season would dictate maybe the exercise selection as well. Yeah. So go, we've, we've touched on it a little bit before. Busy yeah. points of the season, obviously we've got points in the season like now really for some players that are away or not on international duty or whatever it is. So how would that um, sort of work in terms of per periodization and programming? Yeah, I think one of the easiest things to do is make sure you fluctuate the volume to accommodate that. But the one thing that we rarely take into account with volume is displacement. So one thing to consider, if you're doing something like a, a hang pull or a mid-thigh pull or you know any, any of those variations, we've only got a small displacement of the bar. So that means we do less work. If we factored displacement in which we really should do, but it's just not practical to do that all the time. If you compare, uh, let's say a, a hang pull. So we hinge down to the knee, perform that double knee bend or transition, rapidly extend up, decelerate the bar on the way down, and repeat that a few times. If we compare that to a clean, we start with the bar on the floor. So we've almost doubled the displacement because we've got a pull to the knee first. Um, and that works out close to about half of the displacement that you go through um, when you perform, uh, perform it from the knee. And then we catch it in a full depth squat. Then we have to perform a squat at the end of that. Then we'll drop it and then we'll repeat. So you suddenly get a lot more work when you're doing some of those exercises. So if we think about the displacement that we're going through or the barbells going through and the total amount of work that you actually then perform, doing exercises where you've got a more restrictive range of motion is probably preferential in those periods of um, fixture congestion because we can still get a high load stimulus in there, but the amount of work performed is less, so it's less fatiguing. So that would probably be our ideal. Um, and this, you know, that's the same whether it's a clean variation, a snatch variation, et cetera. The other thing to, to consider with that as well, if you're looking at the overhead variations, so push press, push jerk, split jerk, the push press, we're going to do less work. With a split jerk, you drop into that split position. You have to get back out of that split position, lower the barbell down. So if you if we want to minimize work, to minimize fatigue, um, go with the exercises where we've got that slightly reduced displacement and therefore the reduced amount of work. Um, and that's pretty easy to factor in. And again, the one thing to do is not, to, you know, I've seen people do this before and say, Let, let's go lighter. If you go lighter, you do more reps, so you normally end up with a higher total volume if we work out um, volume load. 
So it's it's sometimes it's sometimes it's counterintuitive. Stick with the higher loads, but you do a lower volume, and then factor in displacement. And if we can perform a variation of these exercises to reduce displacement, um, then that's great. The only thing to bear in mind with that though is if you do that for an extended period of time, let's say for example you're doing that with a squat. If you go, I'm going to do half squats. I can load them up. There's not a big displacement. They do less work. Great. That'll be fine at certain periods. But if you had four or five weeks and then not doing a full depth squat, and then you go and do a full depth squat again, you're going to be sore as hell the next day. Yeah. Same as if you take out, you know, something like a, a split squat. If you have a period of time where all you do is bilateral training, you go to a moderate load split squat or a lunge, and you're sore the next day because all those stabilizing muscles have had to work more. So you've got a novel stimulus that you're not used to. So it's a case of moving them in and out of the training program appropriately, but don't exclude some of those exercises, especially with extreme range of motion, or don't exclude unilateral or split stance exercises all the time. Because if you take them away for too long, when you reintroduce them, your athlete's going to be sore and complaining. And you do get a lot of football players in that they will complain and say they're injured and it's just a bit of muscle soreness that they're not, not really used to. Um, You've got a bit of dumbs. You'll be all right. Yeah, yeah you'll be fine. Uh, so yeah it's really a case of manipulate manipulate the volume that they're performing so strip back sets and reps a little bit but stick with your high loads because then the volume's less anyway and if appropriate choose the exercises where the displacement is less because you perform less work brilliant love it i could i could literally go on all day with this sort of stuff i think it's amazing um it just it, it just opens up discussions, doesn't it? I think it, it, yeah. it's just proved that there's there's so many different sort of um, again tools available to us. It's yeah. just getting to know them and getting to know how we then utilize them in our programming, isn't it? And then adapting through the season and with different players, different injuries. It just gives you um, a lot of things that you can turn to at different times. Yeah, and sometimes it's just taking that step back and thinking, what's what adaptation am I after? What also have I got to be cautious of? And that normally is a case of, you know, not an excessive amount of volume, not causing delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, and what's the, what are the different ways that I can attack this? What, what are the strategies I can use? And then which is probably going to be best for the squad as a whole, but also with some individualization in there, because you'll know people have different preferences, different abilities to perform some of the tasks, etc. Um, and it's probably less of a problem in, in football than it is in things like rugby. Um, so sometimes in rugby teams, people can't do the catching variations because they can't get in that position because their shoulders have been beaten up. Yeah. Sometimes they don't have the dorsiflexion to pull from the floor or to clean or snatch from the floor. So you have to elevate them on blocks anyway. But that's that's not a major issue. That, that doesn't really matter. You're still going to get a good training stimulus. Um, but again, it, it's got to be something that the person is confident and competent with and enjoys doing. Because if they don't, they're not going to put in the effort you would like them to put in. So find an alternative that they're happy doing. If they really, you know, if it's just they're anti it because they've never done it, develop their confidence. But if, you, if you've if you tried using certain exercises with them before and you know they're just not confident, they really don't like it for whatever reason, give that athlete something different because otherwise you're not going to get anything out of it. You know, I could give you the best training program in the world, but if you put in a half half-assed effort, or miss some of the sessions, you're not going to get the adaptive responses you should do. So it's got to be the best training program for that athlete, taking all those other things into consideration. Yeah, it becomes a big issue because 
you as a coach haven't got the ability or or the the knowledge to adapt in that situation, isn't it? It isn't an issue until there's there's that yeah. limiting factor. Um, Paul, we'll move on to some of the the quick fires that we do at the the end of the podcast now. Um, but I appreciate you going through all that. I think there's some great stuff in there for everyone listening. First question I ask on the quick fire: Who have been? I'm sure there's plenty in this one. Who have been some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Time to shout out some people. Yeah, it could be loads. I suppose one of the biggest ones, once I moved to Salford, I got employed by Phil Graham Smith, Dr. Phil Graham Smith, that actually was a co-founder of Forstex, who's now yeah. at Aspire. Um, so being employed by him and then conversations that I had with him and Dr. Steve Pearson, who's still at the University of Salford, it was it was a steep learning curve. There's some very, very clever guys. Um and, you know, the underpinning physiology, biomechanics in real detail they would go into. And we'd have some great conversations, um, sometimes just, you know, having lunch, et cetera. Other times it would be out having a few drinks. Um, I won't tell any of the stories about when a few people have been drunk at times because that would get me <laughs> into trouble. But, um, you know, some fantastic conversations with them, eye-opening, looking at things from a different perspective. And that was really when the, the research side of things took off for me. So, you know, that, and that was a, a lot of that was down to them, those those two people um, and Phil Graham Smith giving me the job in the first place, um, which was which was fantastic. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful for because um, that's really been a huge part of my career being at Salford now over the last 14 years. But at the same time, you know, I've, I've sort of got the honour of working with a lot of people closely now. Um a couple of people that I work with, uh, Dr. Paul Jones and Dr. John McMahon, that are based at the university with me. They um, deliver the master's program predominantly. It's, it's the three of us, but with input from other people and having conversations with them and learning from them all the time. Even though when I started at the university, John McMahon, I think, was um, one semester into his undergraduate degree. Uh, but his knowledge and expertise in um, all things biomechanics, use of force plates, et cetera, is, is fantastic. So you've got to learn from everyone you can. Um, and we collaborate quite a bit with Jason Lake down at um, University of Chichester as well. So there's a lot of people out that you work closely with. Um, and then luckily, I've got a good relationship from going to conferences in America and Australia, et cetera, with um, Professor Greg Haff and Professor Mike Stone. So being able to, you know, get on a, a Teams or a Zoom call with Greg regularly is, is always enlightening and eye-opening. Sometimes it's both of us just ranting about stuff. Other times we're actually really trying to learn from each other as well. Um, with Professor Stone, it's, you know, the odd email now and then checking up on certain things. Is this correct or not? And you pretty quickly get told when it's not correct. Um, <laughs> the same same as Professor Half. So people like that. And actually it's a really small community, strength and conditioning. So it's great that you can go to conferences, whether it's in the UK, America, Australia, and there's going to be people there, you know, if you've been to a few conferences and everyone is friendly. Um, so far, I've not met anyone that isn't willing to sit down and chat over a coffee, over a beer, whatever it might be. If it's in Australia, it is normally a beer. Um, and, you know, it's great to have people like that that have got decades, you know, a lot more experience than I've got where you could look and go, wow, in 20 years, could I be as knowledgeable and, you know, experienced and intelligent as that person? Maybe not as intelligent, but I might be able to gain somewhere near that level of knowledge if, if I'm lucky. And I think one of the big things for me is that interaction with practitioners. So going in and speaking to practitioners at different clubs is what's good now is we've had our master's programs been going now for 
12, 13 years, something like that, 12, at least 12 years. Um, so we've got lots of good practitioners in clubs all around the country, but certainly in the local area. And we can go in and chat with them and learn from them, even though you know we might have taught them a couple of years ago, but about the practical side of things. And we've, we've got and we've had some fantastic PhD students who have done some fantastic work and you can learn so much from them. If you're not learning from your PhD student, by the time they're about two years into your PhD, you haven't done a very good job with that student. Mm. Um, and again, for me, it's a case of saying to them sometimes, right, let's have a coffee or let's go out for a beer. And all the stuff I've set you tasked to learn for the last six months, I'm, I want you to impart that knowledge on me. I haven't got the time to read all you know the 300 articles you've just read to put a review together. So share that knowledge with me. Um, so you, you learn a huge amount from everybody. And, you know, it's no good just saying it's the people with the 40 years experience, because sometimes some of those individuals are very set in their ways, very one dimensional. This is the way to do it. And you chat with other people that haven't got preconceived ideas. And they sometimes come up with some really wonderful ideas and examples where you go, I've never thought of that. Mm. That's brilliant. And that's your next bit of research you go off and do. And sometimes that's the practitioners that do that for you as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Some great names in there as well. Uh, I think you might have kind of answered my last question as well, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? And when I say that, obviously relating to lecturing, to going out as a consultant, but overall, what would you say like your biggest strength is? I think probably um, my age. <laughs> Um, that actually from, you know, doing this for quite a while now, nowhere near as much as some people out there, but doing it for quite a while, you don't react as quickly to situations. You don't suddenly jump on the bandwagon with certain things. You take, take a step back and think, well, okay, if it's really, really as good as people are making out, whatever the, you know, the latest technique, the late, latest supplement, et cetera, why, why isn't everyone setting a PB now? Um, so to take that step back, think about things, analyze things a bit more and really make sure that you're not being fooled by, you know, something that's been made to look really good, but isn't. Uh, so the, I think the main thing is, is doing the basics well. And that's whether you're a practitioner, training athletes, testing and monitoring athletes, um, whether you're a physiotherapist, whatever your role might be in sport, doing the basics really well. So with research, you know, planning everything out properly making sure that your methods, et cetera, are robust. Like we've published loads and loads of stuff on reliability, test retest reliability, methodological aspects, you know, what's, what sampling frequency do you need on your force plate? Do you filter your data? How do you identify the point they move? And, you know, they're a little bit tedious and boring, to be honest with you. But unless you get that right, there's so much room for measurement error that you might say, okay, brilliant, my athletes improved 10%. But was that just because you did things slightly differently and that yeah. caused that 10% change, positive or negative? So you've got to do the basics really, really well um, and do it consistently as well. But that's the same for everything. That's the same for teaching. Make sure you're fully prepped when you turn up to a lecture and you know exactly what you're talking about. And if you don't, get somebody else to do it mm. and sit in that session and learn from them. Um, and that's, again, luck at you know luckily i'm in a situation where the sort of team team of people i work with we do that a lot we'll regularly be in you know in our strength and conditioning facility or in the lab someone's teaching we might be collecting some data and doing some research working with other other individuals but learning from each other at the same time um so yeah it's doing the basics and doing them well but also being open-minded to stuff 
you know, something new comes up and everyone wants to jump on it and you look right back through the literature and you'll find it was done in the 40s or 50s or sometimes yeah. before. Yeah. I think, you know, Nordic hamstring exercise, I think the first documented thing of that is from 1890-something. <laughs> um, so, you know, that wasn't invented for the reduction of hamstring strain injuries in football or any other sport. Uh, it was being done way before. Yeah, great point. Final one. Again, I think you might have answered this, but you might be able to add something onto it. I normally ask about CPD and your approach to CPD as a practitioner. Um, and then I know you've obviously said about all the people that you regularly have discussions with, but is there anything else you'd add to that in terms of um, your approach to it? I think that the main thing is take the opportunities, you know, listen to podcasts, listen to um, webinars, um, anything that you can actually listen to to try and learn. There's some really good stuff on YouTube that you'll find. Um, and critique everything you know if it's something that seems really novel take a step back and think about it like I said so learn from all those opportunities network as well and that doesn't mean you have to go out and be you know um, sucking up to people all the time to try and get them to talk to you just go to conferences go to events chat with people some of the things that you host no doubt people will go along they might not learn a lot necessarily from the person that presents but they'll get chatting to other people and you can find that you can go to one conference and be blown away by every single presentation. You can go to another one and go, yeah, I've sort of heard most of this before. And you pick out little nuggets of information here and there, but it's the conversations that you get elsewhere. Yeah. I've had it before when I've gone to, gone to a conference, gone, all right, I really want to see this presentation. Then you start talking with somebody in the corridor on the way there and you never make it to the presentation. Yeah. Um, you can normally find out what happened in that presentation or go and speak to the person afterwards, or you'll get a recording of it now most of the time. So yeah, it's the, the networking side of it is really, really good um, to, to expand your network. And it, it happens quickly and without, without really trying to do it, it just slowly develops and evolves. But it gives you then so many opportunities for CPD in terms of formal CPD. But also that network means you can pick up the phone, you can drop an email to somebody, say, can we have a quick Zoom call or whatever and, and have a chat about things. And like I said, you know, be, be willing to learn from from everyone, um, no matter what their background. You know, I've gone to some presentations where I've thought, this is going to be fantastic. And 20 minutes in, you're sat there going, oh, I need a coffee. This just isn't what I expected. And others where you, you know, you, and incorrectly so, you shouldn't do this. You've made a preconceived judgment on somebody and the topic, and you sit there and they start speaking and you go, wow, yeah. this is really, really interesting. So, you know, take all those opportunities and, um, chat to people i think the biggest thing for me at the moment for most people i do this myself because it's part of my job is most people don't read enough mm. or they read one or two papers and go right i've got this no go right the way back to the orange origins of some of that research um and read and read and read um and you can learn so much there's not a huge amount of um a time for people to do that but chip away at it one of my um one of my colleagues dr nick ripley who's just finished his PhD with us, actually put, said to some students the other day, throughout your degree, if you read one publication per week, I'm not even going to say per day, one per week, you'll have read over 150 publications in the three years of your degree. If you do that on top of what we tell you to read, you'll have a phenomenal knowledge base. And that's not unrealistic to expect that. So even though you might have practitioners that are really busy, one or two papers a week, specific to their topic, and you'll learn a huge amount. Yeah. But... You also need that sort of interaction with people and to discuss things with them and, and, you know, get them to check in, challenge what your thought processes are and your ideas. And it's, it's brilliant. You can learn so much from it. 
It's great to break it down like that, isn't it? The listeners of the podcast will know that I've I've been reading Atomic Habits and the Compound Effect and a few books like that recently. And there's such key messages in that like that. Um, if you yeah. start thinking about, oh, I need to read all these papers, it comes quite daunting, doesn't it? If you start yeah. saying read one a week, it's really manageable. Um, and it's the same with having a conversation with someone, isn't it? Have one conversation a week with someone that you don't probably not going to talk to otherwise. That's suddenly a lot less scary than, right, you've got to speak to 50 pe- people over the next year. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. So, and I've had that recently. I've had a couple of people that have contacted me and said, oh, you know, I heard you on a podcast or I've read this article. I'd really like to have a bit of a discussion about, about it. And you sit down and have a chat with them. And I've sat there and gone, that's a really good idea. Or in one case, they said to me, you know, have you looked at this in more detail? And I sat there and went, no, we haven't, but I've got the data to answer that question. Yeah. So that's fantastic. So, you know, I've said to them, right, do you want to collaborate on it with me? You, you've just come up with the idea. I've got the data. Should we, um, should we work on that? I've yeah. got a lot of stuff I need to finish first, but I'll get back to you in a couple of months time and we'll, we'll get started on it. So it's, it's brilliant. And that was, they wanted, you know, to ask me questions, but I learned something from them and come up with a really good, well, they came up with a good idea of something we can actually do moving forwards, which will help us, but also help anyone else if we publish it. Brilliant. Now, Paul, at Paul Comfort 1975, is that the best place for people to sort of keep an eye on what you've got going on over on Twitter or what would you yeah, direct them anywhere look on else? Twitter or Instagram, it's the same, um, same thing. Um, or drop me an email. Perfect. Amazing. I really, really appreciate that today. I think there was some great stuff in there, mate. So thank you very much for coming back on. Uh, we won't no leave problem. it Thanks another for two years. And, yeah, see you in two years' time. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Take care. All right, cheers, Ben. Thank you for listening to episode 182. I'm sure, like me, you have plenty of notes from that one. Some great information there from Paul and some really good discussion points as well. I I had that topic in mind because I didn't obviously want Paul to come on and say, this is how you train players or this is how you should use powerlifting and weightlifting. But I think he opened up loads of great discussions and he's obviously got all the research to back everything that he's talking about as well, which is great. So he's a great guest to have on for that topic and I hope you enjoyed it. Go and give him a follow at paulcomfort1975 over on Twitter. And I think he's on Instagram as well. Takeaways from this one. Um, I think reverting back to the fact that, and Paul said this a couple of times, that progressive overload is key. And we can get caught up on arguing certain strategies, certain bits of kit, whatever it is. But as long as we're progressively overloading our players and making progress, that is the main thing. And we have to revert back to that sometimes and give ourselves a little bit of a reality check as well. Finding a way of hiding strength, that's probably something that a lot of practitioners listening to this podcast will be able to relate to. We can probably all think of players that don't want to do it and that that find ways out of or try and wriggle out of doing that work and aren't necessarily buying into it 100%. But being clever, finding ways of getting that player to work. And Paul gave some great examples of... um, a player might not want to get under a heavy back squat, but are there other ways that you could load them and, and disguise it a little bit? And there certainly are. And I see loads of great work being done on that as well throughout football. And then the experience factor is crucial in terms of strength training, which really highlights the importance of that in the academy setup, doesn't it? In, in terms of getting that those foundations throughout those ages to so the time you're getting to 18s, 23s, first team, that 
players have got a decent history in terms of strength training and that then allows them it just opens up a few more options doesn't it we're not trying to build those foundations um from scratch at first team level um we're able to sort of develop things a little bit further so some really cool discussion points on this one i really enjoyed this episode and big thank you to paul for coming on and doing it as well if you've not already left us a review please head over to itunes click the five stars and just leave us a quick comment mention your maybe your favorite guest favorite topic in there as well and also on spotify you can do that now as well don't think you can leave any comments but you can just click the five stars i'd really appreciate that because it does help us get out to more people big thank you again for listening Really appreciate the support and I'll speak to you again in episode 183.